praise the Lord for his keeping grace. Turn in your Bibles today, if you would, to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 16. Our passage today comes from Luke, chapter 16, and verse 18. Continuing in our study, if you would, with God's help, direct your attention to the reading of his word. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you today as we come to your holy, inerrant, inspired word. And we ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Lord, we pray that you would do a work in the hearts of your people today. I ask that you would enlarge our hearts, as David said, so that we might run in the way of your commandments. God, I pray for your help in the preaching of your word. I, I ask that you would enable me, like you did in Ezra's day, to read from the book clearly and to give the sense that your people would be able to understand the reading and walk in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. I was doing the math this week. And by my calculations, I have preached more than 500 sermons on the Lord's Day in this church. Every once in a while, I arrive at one that's especially challenging. Uh, not because it's especially difficult to understand, necessarily, uh, that it's difficult to interpret or apply, uh, not because the biblical context is foreign to ours, but because it touches so close to home. It touches so close to home for so many of us. And today is one of those days. The passage that we have before us uh, is one of those passages. Brothers and sisters, our commitment as a church is to the authority of the word of God. Uh, that is our standard for life and for practice. Part of that means that we teach the whole counsel of God, every word that he has breathed out for us. And that's one of the reasons that we typically work systematically through a book of the Bible, preaching expositionally, uh, dealing with everything that has been written, which means, in turn, uh, there are times when we find things that are encouraging and comforting to our souls. The word comes like a balm to our hearts. And then there are times when the word comes like a sword, and it brings things that aren't comfortable to hear, things that challenge us and convict us. Now, there are times when the word requires us to say 
and to believe and walk in obedience to hard things. In John chapter 6, Jesus' disciples describe some of his teachings in that way. They, They describe them as hard sayings. Jesus knew that they were taking offense at some of the things that he was saying, some of the enthusiasm that they had had over some of his earlier teachings suddenly seemed to disappear when they got to what seemed like unbearable sayings. And the Bible says there that after that point, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Well, our desire as a church is to submit ourselves with God's help to whatever we discover in the word, not what's easy, not what appeals to us, but what God has revealed. I say this knowing that there are very few of us here today who find ourselves untouched in at least some way by the kind of issues we have at hand in this passage, whether that's because of divorce or remarriage that you yourself have walked through. Maybe you're a part of a blended family. Uh, Maybe you've experienced brokenness in your extended family, uh, your parents or your children, uh, your friends. That means we all come to a text like this with various amounts of history and baggage and pain. Some of you might even say uh, shame, uh, regret, Some of you just reading the passage that I did this morning is like picking at an old wound. There may be others of you who find yourself in a position today where as you sit under the authority of God's word, you come to realize that you've simply been ignorant of God's ways. And suddenly you are met with ways that you have fallen short of the standard of righteousness that God requires that you hadn't ever realized before. That's not an unusual experience for the people of God, to discover new ways that we fall short. Well, praise God, with that discovery also comes fresh revelations of his all-surpassing grace, fresh outpourings of his mercy, and reminders of the gospel's power for sinners like ourselves. My desire, more than anything, is to be faithful to the word of God and to glorify the Lord in the proclamation of it. That's paramount. Part of being a pastor and, in fact, just being a a faithful Christian means coming alongside those who have experienced the pain and shame and brokenness of things like divorce and adultery and pointing them to the redeeming love and forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ, and at the same time speaking as strongly and unashamedly as Jesus does on these kinds of issues. We want to pray for the boldness to declare God's truth, the divine enablement, not to flinch over this standard, not to waver from uh, urging one another to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, and also at the same time, speak tenderly and compassionately with one another. Our mouths continually proclaiming his mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness.
It's a both and kind of situation. So I want to give you a little bit of an outline of where we're headed today because it's going to take us a little bit of time before we get into the heart of this text. Five big ideas. First, understanding this text in its immediate context. Why does this verse find itself here? Uh, You might think apparently in the middle of nowhere. Secondly, a brief look at God's good design for marriage. Third, we're going to look at the text itself, considering it in light of the broader biblical teaching on divorce and remarriage. Fourth, answering common questions. And then finally, gospel hope for broken sinners. I'm thinking of all of us when I say that, whether you are married, single, divorced, remarried, whoever you are, gospel hope for broken sinners. Fair warning, we're going to move around in the scriptures quite a bit today. Number one, understanding this verse in its immediate context. It's easy to look at a passage like this and come to the conclusion that it is just this kind of random, isolated text that Luke didn't have anywhere else to put, and so he just kind of crammed it in here. It's something he wanted to include in the gospel, and there was no other place really to put it, and so he just shoved it in here. That's not the case. Every text comes in a context. I don't know what Bible you're reading or how it's formatted, but if you remove the section headings, if you just remove the paragraph breaks, what do you have? You have this following right on the heels of Jesus's words in verses 16 and 17. The law and the prophets were until John, Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. He says the law and the prophets were until John. Up until John the Baptist arrived on the scene, the law and the prophets, that's just another way of summarizing the Old Testament, They were the means by which the Lord disclosed himself to the people of God. They were the instruments of his gracious self-revelation. They were the vehicle by which he issued the promises of redemption that were to come in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist is the axis on which everything turned as it relates to the fulfillment of those promises. He was God's servant who stood and cried, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Christ has come. The Apostle Paul said, All the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why we utter our amen to God for his glory. A new era has dawned. Since John, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his his way into it. Sinners are hearing 
the gospel. They're counting the cost. They are striving violently by faith to enter in. They're not letting anything stand in their way. They're forsaking all else. Uh, They're they're taking heaven by storm, is how Thomas Watson uh, described it. Well, the fact that this is the case, the fact that there is this new era marked by the inbreaking of the kingdom of God might give you the idea that the law and the prophets have served their purpose, that they no longer have any relevance for the people of God. But you see what Jesus says next. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void he immediately goes on to insist upon the ongoing validity of the law. And that's not all. all. He goes on to demonstrate that far from abolishing or relaxing the law, he actually interprets it in such a way as to make his understanding, which is, of course, the, the proper, true understanding, the interpretation of wisdom incarnate, even more rigorous than his contemporaries. That's where verse 18 comes in. We'll get there in just a minute. Understand that when I say Jesus makes the understanding sound even more rigorous, it is not that Jesus is changing anything. He is simply showing the true meaning of the law. He's going to demonstrate that the Pharisees' understanding of the law as meticulous, as fastidious as it might appear to seem, was insufficient. It was insufficient. The Pharisees thought of themselves as keepers of the law. They thought of themselves as lovers of the law, but they weren't. In fact, they failed. They failed in their intentions. How did they fail? Chiefly, they failed to see that the law was designed by God in the first place to drive them to the Messiah, to drive them to see their need of the Savior. They were like most people today who like to think of themselves as pretty good people. People who, at the last day, will stand before the judge of all the earth and say, God, my good deeds outweighed my bad. I've done pretty well. God will be pleased to let them into heaven. This is the same error that we see in the Pharisees. They fail to see that the first use of the law is to help us see our need of a Savior. It's to help us see our need of a substitute, someone who can keep the law in our place because we can't. And Paul gets at this in Romans chapters 9 and 10. He says says this, this is Romans 9 and verse 31 Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Who won't be put to shame when they stand before the Father? It's those who believe in Jesus Christ. Those who achieve the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. 
not by law keeping themselves. Paul goes on, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, listen to this, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the problem that you find epitomized in the the hearts and minds of the Pharisees. And, And as I said, in so many today, they did not enter the kingdom of God by faith. They weren't numbered among those who force their way into the kingdom of God, who come clinging in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else. They don't throw themselves around both arms, around Christ, that they might be freely justified on the basis not of their own works, not of their own deeds, not of their own law-keeping, but on the basis of Him, on the basis of His perfect obedience. That's what the law is designed to do, to be that schoolmaster that drives us to the Savior. And yet, that is not its only use. As Jesus so emphatically maintains here, the moral law has not passed away. It hasn't become void. It stands today as a testimony of what pleases God. It makes wise the simple. David says this, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. That's still true. That is still true today. The law teaches Christians how to live for God. The law teaches us how to bring glory to the Lord. What life lived for the glory of the Lord really looks like. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the law has an abiding purpose in the lives of God's people. You see the very same thing in Matthew chapter 5, the sermon on the mount there, where Jesus says, yes, I came to fulfill the law. He came to do what we could not do. And then in the same breath, he also says, I didn't come to abolish it. I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Listen to what he says following that. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then immediately after that, he goes on to give six examples from the Old Testament showing not just the law's relevance to our lives, but its fuller intensified meaning. It's fuller, proper, uh, Christocentric meaning. He says six times, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, you have heard it, heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, every man that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And again, brothers and sisters, Jesus isn't bringing anything new to the table. 
He isn't adding anything that wasn't already there. He is showing the heart of the law's teaching all along. He is helping the people of God to move beyond that that surface level, uh, wooden interpretation of God's word to an attendance to the law that springs from wholehearted love for God and love for neighbor. That's what Jesus's exposition on the law's teaching on divorce and remarriage is designed to demonstrate. It's the same principle. It functions like a kind of case study uh, to show us the law's abiding relevance. It's as if Jesus is saying, here, let me give you an illustration. Now, before we get to the passage, we would do well to consider God's good design for marriage in the first place. Now, implicit in those words, God's good design for marriage is the idea that God is the creator. God is the architect of marriage. Man did not invent marriage. When Adam was created out of the dust of the ground and the Lord God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, Adam didn't look around and think to himself, you know what I really need? I need a woman that I can unite myself to in holy matrimony. I need someone I can covenantally pledge myself to in self-sacrificial, undying love for the rest of my life. That was not Adam's idea. It was the Lord who said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Young people, the Lord is the one who created marriage. He is the one who invented marriage. That means he is the one who gets to decide how it should function. He is the one who decides who may enter into it, if and when it may be dissolved. We do not get to make that decision. The Bible tells us that not only is God the one who's designed marriage, he is actually the one who brings a man and a woman together in marriage. Malachi chapter 2 And verse 15 says this, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Matthew 19 and verse 6 says, It's God who has joined them together. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God created marriage to be a one flesh union between one man and one woman for life. It was his purpose, it was his good design that it be an indissoluble, lifelong covenant commitment, permanent unto death, something never to be broken, never to be ripped asunder. Why is this so important? Why is this so vital to stress? It's because marriage is about something bigger than us. Marriage, dear ones, is about something much bigger, much, much bigger than you and I. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, if you'd like. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is about something more than the man and the woman in it. Paul calls this a profound mystery. It's not just profound. It's not just a mystery. It's a profound mystery. What mystery is bound up in the ordinance of the marital union between husband and wife? Paul makes it explicit for us. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I am saying, hear me, I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a type of the gospel. Church, Christ and the church is the antitype. It is the fulfillment. Husbands and wives, everyone who is married here today, you are a shadow. Christ and the church are the substance. A husband's loving headship, his self-giving service, his provision and nourishment of his bride, his showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, a wife's submission to her husband, her respectful, pure conduct, her holy inner adornment with the imperishable beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit. These are all reference points to Christ and the church. This is at least part of the reason there will be no marriage and giving in marriage in the resurrection. Because marriage is painting a picture of something immeasurably greater than what you know on earth. It is a parable. It is a picture of a love and a bond unfathomably more glorious and eternal than anything we can know or imagine in this life. You have a taste of it here, though. You have a taste of it in the union between husband and wife. You also have a witness to a watching world that stands separated from the love of a kinsman redeemer. 
And so it is incumbent upon us, with God's help, to image this profound mystery as faithfully as we possibly can. Part of God's purpose for your marriage and the marriage of every person in this room, that uh, every, every marriage that, that every single person in this room will ever enter into, is that it manifests a faithful, beautiful, uh, active, attractive witness to a dying world of Christ and the church. His self-sacrificial love for the church, the church's submission to the Savior. You can understand then why the Bible says so plainly and unmistakably that God hates divorce. That's what it says in Malachi 2 and verse 16. It says that the man who does not love his wife but divorces her covers his garment with violence. And probably that suggests that the sin of divorce is so serious and public in nature that it, it's like airing your dirty laundry in front of everyone. He covers his garment with violence. Because marriage is a picture of the gospel, the believing man who divorces his wife or the believing woman who divorces her husband speaks a lie about the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells a lie about the faithfulness of Christ. He bears false witness about Christ's persevering love and solemn determination to present us to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Marriage, the writer to the Hebrews, is something that is to be held in honor among all. How do you do that? How do you hold marriage in honor among all? Uh, Going back again to Malachi, it says there in chapter 2 and verse 15, So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Do you want a happy, flourishing marriage? Begin by guarding yourself. Begin by guarding yourself in your spirit. The greatest issue your marriage is facing today is not what is happening in your spouse, but what is going on in your spirit. Protecting our marriages for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel begins by protecting our own hearts. Uh, Young people, those of you who are single, that begins by guarding your spirit before you're ever married. It begins by seeking to maintain a clear conscience with the Lord, turning aside from anything and everything that would bring reproach to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pursue purity in your heart and mind. Now we come to our text. I'll read it again for us. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. It's possible that the word abomination, just a few verses above in verse 15, may have provided the springboard for this 
comment. You remember where Jesus said, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The, the reason for that connection is twofold. The first comes from a, the, the most well-known text as it relates to divorce and remarriage in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'm going to read that passage for you, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Uh, this is where you find laws pertaining to divorce and remarriage. Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man, die, latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." You see the word there, abomination, in both texts. This very well may have been part of what prompted Jesus to use this particular issue of divorce and remarriage as an example. Uh, more importantly is the contemporary context that Jesus is speaking into at this time. Rabbinical schools of that day, two of them in particular, had put all kinds of energy into trying to sort out what the words some indecency entailed in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, what constituted, in other words, sufficient grounds for divorce? What sort of things fell under some indecency? One very well-known school, the school of Hillel, uh, took such an expansive uh, view of this passage. They had such an expansive interpretation that they saw everything uh, from literally a wife burning her husband's dinner to a husband finding an another woman more attractive as sufficient grounds for divorce. That was all that was necessary. That is the background uh, to what we find in Matthew chapter 19, where the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, for, for just trivial matters? Some of these things may sound like ridiculous reasons to us, trivial things, we have our own trivial reasons in our culture. I found someone more compatible, found someone who understands me. I, I found someone who appreciates me. What is so often cited in divorce proceedings today? We have irreconcilable differences. That brothers and sisters is a denial of the gospel for those that are in Christ irreconcilable differences. That is a denial of the gospel's power. Jesus makes two big points 
in our text. Uh, He says, first of all, that every man who divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery. Now, before you you think that that just applies to men, you can look over at Mark chapter 10 and verse 11, and you see the same thing holds true for women there too. It says, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And then secondly, he goes even further, and he says that even though a man may not have been divorced, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so the implication here is that even when a divorce has taken place, the one flesh union still remains. Jesus establishes a principle here where he says that to remarry after putting asunder what God has joined together is a breach of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. A divorce may have taken place, but only death dissolves the one flesh union. He says that remarriage, while the former spouse is living, constitutes adultery. And he makes no qualifications or exceptions. The the prohibition here is absolutized. He says everyone. So to those who argued in that day and who argue in our own that divorce and remarriage was something that uh, could be entered into lightly, Jesus says that to do so uh, is not only to commit adultery, but it is also effectively to put the former spouse in a position where now you're encouraging another person to come and commit adultery with them. When a man and a woman come together and the two become one flesh, God is the one doing it. God, again, is the one who has joined them together, and it is not for man to separate. That's why in our marriage vows, we stand and we uh, proclaim, we, 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 we vow for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, forsaking all others till death do us part. It has become popular in recent years for couples to write their own vows. I'll have you know that when I officiate weddings, I don't allow that. Um, That is simply because most of the time the vows that couples write are typically little else than sentimentalisms, expressions of love and emotion. And that's all good and fine. Uh, It is thoroughly appropriate to give voice to your love for one another. But a wedding is a time for vows. A wedding is a time to make solemn oaths before God. It's a time to covenant before the Lord. Uh, Malachi says Yahweh was witness. Yahweh was witness between you and the wife of your youth. God stands as witness when man and woman come together and swear uh, as the words that so many of us have uttered ourselves 
even to our own hurt and sickness for poorer, for worse. Even in these things, to be faithful unto death. Let me let you hear how God reserve how, how God um, understands our oath taking before him. Numbers chapter thirty and verse two. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Psalm fifty verse fourteen. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Now some will say, what about Matthew chapter 5 or Matthew chapter 19, the so-called exception clause. I'm going to tell you today, we don't have time to give a full treatment to those passages, but I do want to examine them briefly together. Let me direct your attention to Matthew chapter 19. I alluded to this passage earlier. I'm going to read from Matthew 19, uh, beginning in verse 3. The Pharisees come up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two no, no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Again, you see there the absolute nature of the prohibition. Now the Pharisees continue. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. A couple things are worth mentioning here. First, I want you to notice the way that the Pharisees corrupt God's word, uh, when they come to him in verse 7, and they say, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? This is a reference to that Deuteronomy chapter 24 passage. Brothers and sisters, Moses never commanded anyone to divorce. Moses allowed divorce because of sin. He allowed divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. Jesus says, but from the beginning, it was not so. This was never God's design. They also err 
in their use of the passage, as Jesus makes clear here, and that they want to use it to establish grounds for divorce. They come saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? What qualifies as some indecency? That's the burning question in their minds. But Jesus makes it clear here, the passage in Deuteronomy 24 is not about divorce per se, but about remarriage. This is crucial. The concern of the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is not to deal with the regulation of divorce, but the forbidding of remarriage. Moses says, do not bring sin upon the land by entering into marriage with someone who has been sent away, into unlawful remarriage. Moses' purpose there isn't to say, here are all of the reasons you can pursue divorce. Here are all of the times when it's legitimate, but rather to forbid the pursuit of remarriage. Deuteronomy 24 says, when this has happened, when divorce has occurred, here's what you may not do. Now, I want to take a moment and address some of the questions that commonly arise whenever this passage is brought up, especially uh, if you have never grappled with this passage. Three frequently asked questions. Number one, what do I do if I have already violated God's word on this matter? What if I've already been divorced and remarried, or I've married someone that's been divorced? Does that mean I should go and divorce my spouse? No. You do not add sin to sin. I want you to to know today that the marriage that you have today is a real marriage in the sight of God. When Jesus was talking to the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4, he says this, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. We, we, we see here that even though this, this woman was a, a serial adulterer, even though she had unlawfully entered into multiple marriages, they were still real marriages. Jesus recognizes them as such. Remain in the covenant that you are in today. Do as Joshua did in Joshua 9 with the Gibeonites. You remember how the the Gibeonites deceived the people of Israel there. Uh, uh, The people of Israel didn't ask uh, counsel of the Lord. They were deceived by uh, the, the Gibeonites' ruse. They were deceived by their own foolishness, and they, they leaned on their own understanding, and they entered into this coven, covenant that they shouldn't have entered into with the Gibeonites. Well, what now? We've already made a covenant. We've already sworn a, a solemn oath. What should we do? 
This is what Joshua said, Joshua 9, verse 19. We have sworn to them by Yahweh, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. You see the principle. You who find yourself in this position today, you have sworn before the Lord who is witness, confess your sin to God, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and be faithful. Be faithful to the covenant that you have made. Number two, I divorced and remarried while my former spouse was still alive. Am I living in a perpetually adulterous state? Again, no. This does not mean, for example, that every act of marital intimacy constitutes a new act of adultery. That is not what the Bible teaches. The stress in the text is on the remarriage itself, that initial joining together. Again, flee to Christ. Run to the Lord Jesus. Run to the mercy that his shed blood affords to you. Confess your sin. Live for him with the assurance that he is faithful and just to cleanse you, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Run to him. Number three, is it ever appropriate to get remarried? Yes, under certain circumstances. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. You see there, again, the same principle we have seen today. Only death dissolves the one flesh union. Even when divorce has occurred, we remain bound as long as the former spouse is alive. Paul echoes the very same thing in Romans chapter 7. He says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So if your former spouse is living, reconciliation there should be your first desire. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11, to the, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from, the, from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Do not separate, but if for whatever, hap- for whatever reason this happens or has happened, go and be reconciled. If your former spouse dies, you are free to be married to whoever you want, but only in the Lord. Only to another Christian. Finally, gospel hope for broken sinners. This passage will undoubtedly spark a number of questions in some of your minds. I want you to know uh, that your elders love you. Uh, We are available to visit with you, to pray with you, to bring God's word to bear in your life. Most of all, I want you to know that you serve a gracious, redeeming God.
If all of this is new to you, be assured that there's good news even in hard words. Even in hard words like this, that if you will confess your sin, you can receive his mercy today. You can know the abundance of his pardoning grace in your life. No one is exempt from the hope that is found in Romans 8, that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We do not serve a God who works only with those who are clean slates or those who have never been divorced, or who don't have a record of sin. In fact, we serve a God who only works with those who come to him acknowledging their sinfulness, their depravity, their waywardness, their unworthiness, and who delights to take those vessels, those clay pots, and make them instruments for his purpose and his glory. If you will come to him, he will do that with you. To those of you who have been divorced or have sought unlawful remarriage, flee to Christ. Seek forgiveness and relief from your sins in the blood of Jesus Christ. He is your only hope. He is your only hope. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, the Lord Jesus, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. If you're a sinner and you know it, trust in Christ. He will free you from the guilt of your past. Hear me loud and clear today. Divorce and unlawful remarriage are forgivable sins. They are forgivable sins. Confess your sin. He will grant you forgiveness from their penalty and their power. Look to him. He will make you clean. Every single marriage that is represented here, every marriage that every single person here will ever enter into is and always will be profoundly dependent on the blessing and the grace of God, which he is happy to bestow on all who seek him. Let us do that together today. Heavenly Father, where would we be if it were not for your grace? Where would we be if you had not revealed yourself to us If you had not spoken in to our darkness and shame and our guilt and our waywardness and given us the path of life and light and peace. Lord, we thank you for your word. We acknowledge our sin. Lord, we acknowledge that which is visible to others and that which only you can see. We pray for your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for all of the ways that we break faith in word and thought and deed. Lord, I pray for the marriages of this church. I ask that your hand of blessing would rest upon each one. I I pray that you would strengthen husbands and wives, giving us the grace to follow you by faith, not by our own understanding. 
Lord, help us when, when we are sinned against, when we are offended, to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as we've been forgiven in Christ. Lord, when we sin against others, help us to be quick to confess our sin. Help us to see ourselves clearly. Lord, I pray that you would give uh, the children of this church visible witnesses of the gospel in the marriages that are represented here, not just in their own homes, but everywhere they look. Lord, I, I pray for those who desire marriage. I pray their desires would be according to the pattern of your word. I, I ask that you would give them spouses who love you, who know you, who follow you with their whole heart, who are devoted to you with every fiber of their being. Lord, give them marriages where Christ is at the very center. Lord, thank you for the liberty and the healing and the forgiveness that your, your cross brings to our souls. Thank you for the love and the mercy that we have known in Jesus Christ. We praise you, and we give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.